I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today is Don Levy from Albany, New York, who will be sharing his poems and talking about the importance of the local poetry community. Then, I'll be reviewing Sherman Alexie's deeply moving memoir, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. Stick around. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Don Levy from Albany, New York. He's been an active member of the poetry scene there since 1988, reading at various venues, and he, in fact, created a couple of reading series, one at the Albany Art Gallery and uh, and a couple of others, and he also is the, an editor of the Albany Anthology. Add to that, he's very active in the community of poets in general, been on the board of the Hudson Valley Writers Guild and of Albany Poets, another organization. So, Don, it's great to have you here and uh, talk thank about it. Thank you for asking me. And I want to thank Dan for setting this up. So That's very it. Cool. Dan, very Dan, Dan Wilcox is our Capital Region Tech Advisor, Assistant Helper. He is. He's yes. a great guy. An all-around good guy. Is we're all grateful to have someone like him. So you first came out and started reading on the Albany Poetry Scene. Uh, how did that happen? How did you get started? Well, I think what happened. I was always writing poetry since I would say when I was at Hudson Valley back in '81. Mm-hmm. But I never really had an audience. I went to a poetry workshop in Oneonta with Donald Peterson, who passed away a number of years ago at Oneonta, and that helped me a lot. And then one day, I probably was walking down Lark Street, and I saw a notice about the readings at the QE2, uh, the open mic. And I remember, uh, because Tom Nattel, as we remember, is our great friend, um, he was like, you only have four minutes and I proceeded to read six poems, thinking that that was four minutes. <laughs> and then he's like, okay. when he got up and he's like, no, you're only supposed to do four minutes. And I, I was huffy. I'm like, oh, I'll never come back. But really, there was nowhere else to read your poems. I, I guess you could read them in your living room to yourself mm-hmm. in the mirror in the bathroom but you know there was no place you could share your poetry so you're a quick study in terms of figuring out yeah what you can do in four minutes yeah but <laughs> yeah and i learned quickly what worked and what didn't work for me so it was a great learning experience going to that open mic yeah, yeah i yeah i feel like you often are, are a pretty funny guy and um, i don't know i, I kind of think you've gotten funnier over the years do you think that's true <laughs> Well, thank you. You know, I, it's funny. I remember the those six poems. I can't remember the exact ones I read, but I know they were all serious because I was going to be a serious poet. Mm. Um, and then I read the poem about the condoms. <laughs> I had saw, you know, Joe London on GMA talk about condoms for like 20 minutes. And I thought it was hysterical. So I wrote this poem, something like, um, you know, condoms come in many shapes and sizes, many 
colors and shapes, but the only things condoms don't come in is you. It's sort of like a play on the word. Come. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe all the people were laughing about it. And I couldn't believe that next month, Tom Nattel remembered it. <laughs> it was like, oh, I didn't think, you know, and I read it because Tom Nattel had the um, Midnight Mass for Andy Warhol. And so I thought, well, that's sort of a good Andy Warhol type of poem, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah, learn what the audience likes. <laughs> right. Right. All right. And plus, yeah. in the QE2 back then, it was all dark in the back room. So you really couldn't see. And actually getting laughter was one of the best ways you knew whether how you were doing, whether people really liked you or they didn't think much of you, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, if somebody's out there in the dark. Yeah, it was totally dark. You couldn't see anyone. The lights were right at you. <laughs> For, for people who don't know, the QE2 is a rather remarkable venue that used to exist in Albany. It had been a white castle restaurant turned into a nightclub. And I would tell people it's the kind of place where uh, on a weekday night, two unknown, up and maybe up-and-coming bands from Boston would be playing. The walls were painted black. The whole place was painted black. It was. It was and one, one and, but there was an open mic poetry series there, which was, was quite interesting. And... Uh, well-known poets when they came to town read there, like Allen Ginsberg and, and others. So uh, it, it was a hell of a place. It was an amazing place, too, because, I mean, back then, he would have, Tom Nattel, who ran it, he would have 30, 30, 35 people at one of these open mics, you know, everyone <laughs> wanting to read. And it was so, you know, uh, it was amazing that there's so many, and so many different people. There was Linda Bullett, who called herself, well, I don't know if she called herself, but she was a housewife. You had Gil Purdy, who rode a cab, drove a cab. You had all these college students. You know, I, I wasn't working for the state, but I know Dan Wilcox was. So it was a great mix of different people. That's what made it exciting back then. Yeah, it was, it was extremely interesting, and then right there in downtown uh, Albany. So, well, maybe we should hear a poem, Don. What okay. do you say? Why don't I start off with one of my more recent poems? Uh, this one is sort of—I like it because it talks about my dad who passed away in 2004, and you know, it, he was a sports writer. I was never into sports, but I did like every year ABC. Wide World of Sports had diving from Acapulco. And for a gay kid like me, that was exciting. So this is for <laughs> divers. Are you talking about the Speedos? Yes, they had this. Okay. But, but the, you know, they were beautiful, beautiful guys. And they were diving off cliffs, which was dangerous. <laughs> this is called Divers. Usually I hated watching sports on TV with my dad. Hated when a golf tournament went on too long, and I would miss the wonderful world of Disney. I There was one sporting event, though, on ABC's Wide World of Sports that I loved watching with my dad every year, and that was the male diving from Acapulco. Beautiful, tall, 
Young men with grace and lean muscles would dive off the cliffs. And for re one, some reason, it was always filmed in black and white. And hopefully, they would land in the ocean below. I loved how precise those divers had to be one foot either way, and they might land in the rock on the rocks instead of the water. My damn dad seemed confused that I finally took an interest in the sport, even though it didn't involve a ball or violence in any way. I understood, though, as I watched each brave man dive off of the cliff, that I didn't really care who won. I just wanted to spend a Saturday afternoon watching handsome men cheat death and land in the cool Mexican water below. Whoa. Yeah, I can see the picture. <laughs> and, and one of those poems, like, you get a memory, and that's how it sort of started. Yeah. Yeah. And and when, when you write a poem like that, uh, does it come pretty quickly or uh some poems do some poems don't you know uh, i think i've gone over the years a system that sort of works for me sometimes i like to think about it in my head and you shape the lines and you think of the images um and you know that might take a week two weeks whatever and then you feel like okay i can write this poem um there are others like i'm what i'm going to read later that came all the sudden so it, it you know i i think as i got older i don't do as many revisions because mm -hmm. i sort of know what i'm looking for and if i can't make it work then i'm like okay i guess that's going with some being older like okay i'm not gonna bother with it <laughs> you don't have to salvage every single one that you start. Right. Or maybe you'll come back next year or something like right. that. And you know, sometimes uh -huh. I have come back to a theme. I've uh -huh. written a poem. Yeah, I'm I instead of like struggling for a couple of days on a poem that's not really working. And I always use I don't know if it's the right term. Sometimes my problem is I can't find a good ending. I call it overwriting, like I keep writing and writing and writing, hoping that I will get the right oh, ending. <laughs> and then you just have this long poem and nothing seems to gel at the end. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's that's frustrating. I mean, uh, and, a, and a common, I think a common problem I run into it sometimes, you know, is I write an ending, but I think it just, I don't know, you know, just doesn't sound right. Well, you know, it's it's like, you know, when the gymnasts land perfectly, that's, you know, you want to try that in poetry, but yeah. it doesn't always happen. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Hey, well, but do another poem. What? Um, do another poem. Okay. Well, I'm going to yeah. read, um, uh, there's this website. Actually, it's on um, Instagram called Hot Dudes Reading. And it's basically <laughs> these photos of good-looking men in New York City reading on the subway. So I sort of thought of that as like the starting point of this poem called Hot Dudes Reading. 
I'm always on the lookout of hot dudes reading on the bus, in coffee houses, on park benches, or stoops, or on their porch sipping lavender tea while reading Siddhartha. There are several of types of do, hot dudes reading. There's the casual Casanova waiting at the bus stop with a strand of his floppy hair draped sexily over one eye while reading Fear of Flying. There's the hot professor dude with a neatly trimmed beard reading Middlemarch on the 114 bus to Crossgates. There's the serious tattooed dude with his long blonde hair and the sleeves rolled up past the elbow to reveal his tattoo sleeves standing over you on the bus ride home reading Love in the Time of Cholera. And there's the young man in the suit and tie at the doctor's office halfway through Infinite's Jest, or the older George Clooney lookalike on the number 100 bus reading one of LBJ's biographies, and I fall in love with them all, trying to impress them when I take out of my backpack my battered copy of Dickens' 900-page Bleak House. I remember one summer day years ago, there was a tall, blonde-haired guy in a well-tailored blue suit who got off the number 10 bus at the corner of Western and Quail the same time I did. He was holding a copy of Delilo's White Noise, a book I loved at that minute. I fell in love right outside of Mary Jane's books. I wanted him to, I wanted to ask him if he wanted to have a child with me, but he was much quicker crossing Western Avenue than I was. And before I could get out the words, that's a great book, he was already across Western and seemed to disappear down the roads. And my dreams of the two of us having a ravity rainbows themed wedding was gone and I stood alone. And just remember what they say about hot dudes reading big books. <laughs> <laughs> That is, is interesting. I find it interesting with a poem like that when you're talking about all the different characters and all the different things they're reading. And I know from your many Facebook posts that you yourself just read a hell of a lot and, and are aware of a whole lot of... of uh, and I was wondering, uh, how did you... Can you say anything about how you came up with the titles of what these characters are reading? Oh, well, you know... I well, some of it was, you know, looking at the website itself because they had, like, they call one guy casual cats, Casanova. So I was like, okay, what would he be reading? Fear flying. You know, and then, you know, you know, the guy with the tattoo sleeve, for some reason, he would be reading, you know, Love at the Time of Cholera. You know, it's just like... Sometimes you think of things, and then I thought, like, at the end of Gravity's Rainbow-themed wedding, I thought, what's the craziest book that I would have a themed wedding to? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> so it's interesting. You uh, you went off of some idea you already had, or, or like a photo of a guy yeah. who would be the character. And from that, you kind of free associated uh, what would go with it. 
Yeah, well, it's, uh, usually I don't do that all the time. Usually there's something that happens, and I'm like, okay, I want to write about it. It's, you know, it's sometimes it's just when it hits you, and they're like, okay, yeah. this would make a good poem. There are times, though, like I wanted to write about how there were some people in the gay community who were upset that Trump didn't do a proclamation for pride for Stonewall. And all I could think of is him doing like, we have the biggest homos. You have not seen <laughs> the biggest homos, but we have you know, something like that. But that's the only line I could come up with, like big homos. And okay, so I thought I didn't write that. I'm like, okay, that's not gonna work. Uh, like a concept, but you couldn't like flush it out with. Yeah, a, yeah, if, yeah, with, yeah. I yeah. know I can't flush it out. Well, I'm, like, I'm just interested. Yeah, this issue interests me. This this way, this kind of poem interests me a bit because now I I couldn't tell just hearing it this one time, but uh, the rhythm of the titles that you could choose to put in fit. What they did, nothing was jarring. They right. fit. So I'm just thinking. You know, you have a choice of Bleak House, Middlemarch, whatever. Right. Uh, and 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 sometimes that's a factor because in that situation, you have a lot of choice of what book do I want the guy to be reading? Well, you know, I think I learned a lot of that that's from Frank O'Hara because he would be, it wouldn't be like I'm on this, I'm on the street. I'm on 37th yeah. Street. And, oh, I'm at this store. I'm buying, you know, this kind of cigarettes, you know, and I think learning from him, I think that's a great way of learning to be a writer because if you just like, I'm walking down the street, okay, that's sort of boring. It doesn't really tell me it. It could be any street in America. If I say, you know, I'm walking down Fifth Avenue and I'm going to Bergdorf's or something, at least you have an image now of what's going on. Yeah. With a lot of connotation to it. Yeah, I think that's why I, I, you know, Frank O'Hare is one of my favorite, all-time favorite poets, and I think I got a lot out of that, you know, learning not just about his sense of humor, which is amazing. He, he was able to turn things on a dime with his, you know, clever yeah. phrasing and everything. But I think um, it was very specific, like, uh, you know, the, the, the poem about uh, when Billie Holiday died. It's like one place after another after another. And he doesn't really mention her by name, except in the title, The Day Lady Died. Yeah, but it's a great poem. It's just amazing that you feel like you're there with him. I'm like, okay. And that's when, at the end, when you, he feels the emotion, when he, he reads the headline. Mm -hmm. That's why the poem works, I think. <laughs> I feel like that's a later part of poem writing when you've got it down and then you're looking at why well, this guy is reading this book. Do I like that one for him? Or would I rather like a title with an M in it? <laughs> or, yeah, or, or, G like, or something like that. It's just like, and I do remember that guy reading um, White Noise got off the bus <laughs> because he was a very beautiful yeah. young man. And, you know, he walked away before I could say anything. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I think it's a process to you. You figure out, like, I like 
their poems, I talk about gay. You know, uh, I try yeah. to pick out, like, it's a, it's a poem about a gay character. I'll try, you know, I can't use, like, a name like Tony or Frank. It has to be something like Van. <laughs> you know, I, you know, like in, um, you know, a Modern Family, you have these names like Lamarcus. <laughs> I'm longitudinous, and they're great names. Like someone took the time to think of what are we going to name these people? You know, right. Maybe I'll read another. All right. This one I just wrote about. We were talking about the QE2 days, and mm. I was reading some of my older poems going through them. And I didn't really bring a lot of the ones I read because, you know. Mm. A lot of them, you know, are so old, and I, you know, I don't really relate to some of them. But I was reading them, and something struck me about them. You know, uh, and so I'll read this: reading old poems. I forgot most of them, to be honest. I wrote probably wrote too many poems during my early days when I'd read at the QE2 open mic. You wanted to read a new poem every month. That was a goal of mine. I wrote a poem about a skateboard shop on Lark Street that didn't last more than a year. I wrote poems about Lake George or jewelry store in Soho about condoms, poems about condoms and lobsters in Grand Union. What embarrasses me most though is not the awkward phrasing or the typos or my overuse of alliteration but that I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and I did not come out. Never told person, people, the person I wanted to play pokey in in one poem was my boyfriend at the time, or the person in another poem who broke up with me and rode his bike down Delaware Avenue in the moonlight was another boyfriend, or the person I was flirting in one poem at a bar town downtown was a male poet I had a crush on for many years. It's sad that I never used the correct pronoun, never was brave enough back then to come out to all the poets squeezed tight in the dark back room of the QE2. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm now learning how to type poems up on my phone. Wow. I'm such a Luddite. Uh, well, you're ahead of uh, me on that one. <laughs> and I realized, oh, it's, that's much simpler than going to the library and typing up poems. Yeah, my yeah. brother gave me a notebook, and he uses the cloud, but that doesn't help you when you need to. <laughs> right. When you need to have it right there to read. Yeah, so. Um, do, you have, do you have anything to say? You mentioned, though, just before we went on, uh, on the air, you might say that you might have something to say about the poetry scene there in Albany. It's, oh, it's very uh, unique. It's it's extensive for a town that size. I think you know. It's been amazing. I mean, I've been part of it since 1988. I'm surprised that we keep on going forward. We keep on getting new names, new people. Um, it has changed over the years because, you know, back when we were doing it back in the 80s and 90s, there was no internet. There was no, you know, Facebook. There was no um, YouTube. And now there are all these entities you can post your poetry to. So I think 
some people, you know, people don't come out to readings because of that. But I think when people do go, they sort of, you know, hopefully they get hooked and like, oh, this is interesting. This is, plus you can meet people easier than if you're on your computer and yes, you're typing to Joe in Oregon, but you're not in the same room really talking about the same stuff. So I, I've always been a big advocate of readings. Readings. I I love it when someone new comes along and you're just blown away and like, who is that person? I want to meet them. I'm glad we were coming together and we've done the podcast. Yeah, got it. That's beautiful. Uh, thanks for the poems and Thank and you the, for the opportunity. Always glad, always glad to put a voice out there, a good voice, and your poems. Uh, it's been really nice. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, Charlie. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. We've been visiting with Don Lee, poet from Albany, New York. And now I'd like to tell you about Sherman Alexie's new book, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. Sherman Alexie recently abruptly called an end to a tour he was on, doing readings promoting his new memoir. And having read the book, I can say it's easy to understand why. The experiences that are recounted and the writing of them had to be extremely emotionally draining. Sherman Alexie has a complex, contradictory, loving, frustrating, highly emotional relationship with his recently deceased mother. Most of his new memoir, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, is about his experience of that relationship. Here's how he describes it. The memoir is mostly about my relationship with my late mother, Lillian Alexi. She was a complicated and difficult person. She was sometimes cruel and often cold. I loved her, yes, but sometimes I hated her too. She was brilliant, funny, beautiful, generous, vindictive, deceitful, tender, manipulative, abusive, loving, and intimidating. She was bipolar, as is Alexi, which contributed to their difficulties. She was also a monumental liar, which adds an interesting twist to the story that Sherman is fully aware of. He wonders if what she told him was true or what of what she told him was true. He also questions his own recollections. The book has 160 chapters, some of which are poems, some short prose pieces, and a few are prose as long as 20-plus pages. Alexi likens it to the quilts his mother made to support the family. Here's how he describes that. He says, I realized I'd constructed a quilt of words only after I read my own damn book for the first time in its entirety. And then I saw the patterns and repetitions of patterns. I saw the stitches and knots. I saw the hands had worked in the same way that my mother's hands had worked. Fabric square, odd infinitum. My mother, the quilter, will always haunt me. Through the montage, a picture of the relationship emerges. The book begins with an account of an outrageous party his parents threw with the entire reservation invited. 
As Alexi tells it, guests included more than one murderer, numerous child molesters, as well as criminals of other types. As the party got more drunken, noisy, and violent, Alexi slipped out of the room where he had barricaded himself, only to see his father wrestling with a friend until the two stumbled drunkenly down a flight of stairs to the basement where they fell asleep in each other's arms. Meanwhile, his mother, who was playing poker with friends, suddenly accused one of the women of cheating and began punching her in the face, bloodying it. Sherman retreated to the master bedroom where the other kids were holed up for the night. In the morning, his mother came, grabbed him and the rest of the kids, and left the house, vowing to never return. After a diner breakfast, she calmed down and realized she actually had no place else to go, and returned to the house, but with a vow to never drink again. And from that day forward, she did not take another drink, and alcohol was not allowed in the house. As Sherman puts it, that's why I'm still alive. The book also includes insights about racism and the shameful government policies regarding Native Americans. At one point, an out-of-control fire near the reservation is headed for an abandoned uranium mine. The government's response was that they didn't have available resources to fight the fire, and, they claimed, the fire burning through a uranium mine did not present a danger to the Spokane Indian community. In one stunning paragraph, Alexi gives a scathing description of the dysfunctional aspects of reservation culture and how white Americans' policies helped shape it. If some evil scientist had wanted to create a place where rape would provide would be a primary element of the culture, then he would have built something very much like an Indian reservation. That scientist would have put sociopathic and capitalistic politicians, priests, and soldiers in absolute control of a dispossessed people, of a people stripped of their language, art, religion, history, land, and economy. And then, after decades of horrific physical, emotional, spiritual, and sexual torture, that scientist would have removed those torturing politicians, priests, and soldiers, and watched as an epically wounded people tried to rebuild their dignity. And finally, that scientist would have taken notes as some of those wounded people turned their rage on other wounded people. Alexei also talks about his recent brain surgery to remove a benign tumor, a condition that could possibly recur in the future. So as you can see, Sherman Alexei has just come through some stressful times. In this new memoir, he courageously faces and explores them. There's much more in the book than I can go into here. I simply want to strongly encourage you to read it. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this has been Poetry Spoken Here. 
Join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.